3, continuing our series in John this evening, looking at verses 22, and we will go all the way through verse 36, the end of the chapter, the end of John 3. You know, loyalties create some interesting circumstances in their lives, in our lives, don't they? There are many loyalties that we can see in society all around us. I think of sports teams and the loyalties that surround sports teams. Not so much here in the Americas as much as perhaps in Europe. Uh, situations where when a sports team wins or perhaps when a sports team loses, there are riots in the streets, millions of dollars of damage done because of loyalties to a team. Think of people who fight for their particular brand of clothing or their particular brand of car or their particular brand of cell phone, and they are loyal to those companies to the point where they are willing to get into physical arguments with other people over their loyalties to this car company or this cell phone company or whatever the case may be. But loyalties roll over into less frivolous areas of our lives as well, do they not? Loyalties roll over to politics, to nations, and even to religion. In the political arena, we have seen particularly in the last four years, people who are following not so much principle as they are following a person. They have divided their political loyalties not along lines of information, but along lines of personality. We see this in the national context. Along the time of uh, November when the voting opportunity comes around and particularly as we think about the time around the 4th of July where we are compelled, we are encouraged to voice our loyalties to this nation. Men and women who die following the orders of their leaders, of their generals, of their captains, of their president because they have great loyalty to their nation. Loyalties happen in the religious sector as well, do they not? People who devote their time and their money even commit their souls to men who they regard as leaders. We learned about one of those this morning when missionary Gillespie preached on Papua New Guinea. He talked about the gentleman Peter Miapua, a I don't know, uh, he didn't really give him a label, except that they called him the rain, the rainwater, something to, the raindrop, thank you, the raindrop, that he came down from heaven and they considered him as being the mediator between God and man. And so they gave their loyalties, many people in Papua New Guinea gave their loyalties to this man, to his form of religion. They would give their money to him. They would give their time to him, even to the point where they would kill for him, for his message. And as we consider all of these loyalties, my question for you this evening is, where do your loyalties lie? Religiously, where do your loyalties lie? Perhaps I could ask it in a different fashion. Religiously, where should your loyalties lie. 
Look with me, if you would, in John 3. We'll begin reading in verse 22, and I'm going to read through verse 36. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, this, excuse me, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, Rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth, and cometh, excuse me, he that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This evening we are going to look at two important truths concerning your religious observances learned from the testimony of John the Baptist. As we think about those things that we do religiously, our religious observances, let's learn two important truths concerning them. The first important truth that we will see is found in verses 20 through, 22 through 27, and it is this. You don't follow a religion of men. You follow the truth of God. You do not follow the religion of men. You follow the truth of God. In our text, we transition to a new scene in the scriptures. Now, according to verse 22, this new scene takes place sometime after these things. Well, what are those things that we had been talking about? We recall from the rest of John chapter 3, Jesus and his disciples had been in Judea. Specifically, they had been in Jerusalem for the Passover. There, Jesus had done many miracles. Following these miracles, Nicodemus comes to Jesus Christ by night. And he says, Rabbi, I know that you are from heaven, for no man can do these things except he be sent from God. Jesus Christ begins to teach Nicodemus. And that's what we've spent the last four weeks learning about. He taught him about uh, the Holy Spirit's role in salvation through the process of being born again. That transaction, not a process, the transaction of being born again. Then he taught him about the son's role, as the son must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Then the father's role, that the father so loved the world that he gave his son. And then finally, the responsibility of man, which is to believe. If he doesn't believe, he's condemned already. But if he believes on the name of the only begotten son of God, then he will pass from death to life. All of that has come to pass, and Jesus Christ is speaking to Nicodemus throughout that time. And now we get to verse 22. Jesus is no longer speaking to Nicodemus. It says, after these things. Now Jesus and his disciples were in a place called Anon, near to Salem. 
As is typical, we don't really know in the book of John exactly where this is. And Jesus is there, and it says that people came. Excuse me, John was in Anon near Salem. Jesus was uh, in the land of Judea, and there Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. Now, it, we will learn in John 4, too, and it's just a little bit of a side note here, that Jesus did not himself baptize anyone. But in fact, it was his disciples who were the ones who were baptizing in the name of Jesus. John was still baptizing unto repentance, and he was near Anon, in Anon, near to Salem, where we do not exactly know where that was. It is somewhat significant, however, when we understand that John is still baptizing. Though his baptism is a baptism unto repentance, he sees no reason to stop when Jesus Christ's ministry began. Because what he is doing is not in conflict with Jesus Christ's ministry. Rather, it is in agreement. It is complementary to Jesus Christ's ministry. So John continues his baptism while Jesus Christ is and his disciples are baptizing as well. The baptism of John did not remove the need for men to believe on Jesus. These two acts, however, were not in opposition one to another. Those who truly accepted the baptism of repentance that John preached would, by extension, accept the baptism of Jesus, accept the message of Jesus, believe on the name of Jesus, because these messages were complementary. Now, the text is careful to note, finally, in verse 24 that this was a time prior to John being thrown in prison. The book of John does not give us much about this situation. Uh, the majority of what we know about John's time in prison is found in the book of Matthew. Matthew 14.3 states that Herod had thrown John into prison for the sake of his wife, Herodias. She had married Herod, However, before she had married Herod, she had presumably, she had left her husband Philip, who was Herod's brother. Presumably, she had divorced Philip to marry Herod. Now, John spoke out against this union. He denounced it. He said that it was not lawful that Herod should have Philip's wife. And Herodias was very angry at this. The, Herod's wife, Herod's new wife, Philip's wife, Herodias, it was not so much Herod but his new wife, Herodias, who was very angry at this. She was so angry, in fact, that she demanded that Herod, insisted that Herod arrest John the Baptist, and so he would do so. But this is before those events take place, and uh, John is careful to distinguish that. This brings us to the time in question. This brings us to the event at hand. According to verse 25, there arose a question between John's disciples and the Jews. Now, as we've seen throughout the book of John, when we hear this title, the Jews, we're speaking of the leadership in Jerusalem. Most likely, it was primarily made up of Pharisees. There were some Sadducees on the council, but the Sadducees, we don't see them coming up as much in headbutting with Jesus Christ and uh, Jesus Christ's followers as much as we see with the Pharisees. So my, most likely the contention here with John's disciples is specifically with the Pharisees. We will, uh, if you actually look at John 4 verse 1, you can substantiate that when the Lord Jesus 
It says, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. So we get a little more specific in John 4, 1, that as Jesus Christ hears about the situation that we're about to learn about this evening, what he hears about is that the Pharisees specifically had heard about this news. And so most likely these Jewish leaders were in fact the Pharisees. Now notice the contention here. It says that there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. Now, there is something very unique here that I want to highlight from the Greek. When I was studying this out in the Greek, I found a Greek sentence construction that I did not expect. Normally, in English as well as in Greek, when we were reading something such as this, there arose a contention between John's disciples and the Jews we would expect, as it is in English, for the Greek to have a subject, a verb, and then an object and an object. There arose a contention between the Jews and the disciples. But that is not how the structure of the Greek sentence is laid out. Rather, the Greek text would literally sound this way. There was a controversy from the disciples of John with the Jews. The source being the disciples of John, and they are contending with the Jews. So the implication of the Greek text, the text specifies that John's disciples are the ones that initiated this question, that initiated this controversy. And this is interesting, because as I would think about this passage, I would think that the Jews came to John's disciples and said, what's he doing here? What's going on here? But in fact, in the Greek text, as you look at it, it's the other way around. It was John's disciples that were initiating this contention with the Jews. And this controversy was over purifying, which is one way in which the Jews would refer to this act of baptism. So the controversy was over John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. That is the controversy that we are dealing with. And so these men, both the Jews as well as the disciples of John, come to John and they question him. And that question is found in verse 26. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. From verse 26, it is evident what has transpired between these two groups, between some of the disciples of John and between these Jewish leaders. The leaders of the Jews most likely made some remark concerning the fact that John's ministry was being overshadowed by Jesus' ministry, that Jesus was, was baptizing more disciples than John. Since Jesus had, we recall, submitted himself to John's baptism, Jesus was actually considered to be a disciple of John because Jesus had submitted himself to, Christ, to John's baptism. And this is one of the reasons why John was apprehensive in the first place to baptize Jesus. Now this disciple, this disciple of John, who is Jesus Christ, was baptizing men himself, and in fact, his ministry, his baptism, was becoming more popular, was becoming more effective than his, as the, the Jews would see it, his mentor, or his master, or his rabbi, John's baptism. 
Now, the, Jew, the Jews probably here saw the making of a great controversy. They were probably licking their chops a little bit as they saw John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. They were probably wringing their hands and saying, we've got a good religious controversy here. John and Jesus, they're going to start to fight back and forth and their disciples are going to fight back and forth and we're going to have a good old religious civil war and then both, both of these movements are just going to fizzle out because they're just going to start competing one with another. No doubt that is what they were thinking. And perhaps they made a, a, a remark to some of John's disciples about this. And John's disciples got indignant. And they began to, to say, wait a minute, no, 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 that's not how this is. Now we don't exactly know what the contention was. What the disciples of John contended. Perhaps they argued with the Jews that John's ministry still had great strength and was not threatened at all by Jesus. Perhaps they were arguing what we understand to be the truth, that these men are not in competition at all. That in fact, that John's ministry and Jesus Christ's ministry are complementary. And perhaps that's what they were trying to argue with the Jews. Whatever the case, as the disciples of John brought this up and began arguing with the Jews about this, they decided they needed to go to John himself. And so they came to John and they asked him, about this particular circumstance. Now the rest of the chapter is a revelation of John's answer to the Jews. And it begins in verse 27 with a statement that reveals our first very important truth this evening. John says, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Recall our first important truth this evening. You don't follow a religion of men. You follow the truth of God. You do not follow a religion of men. You follow the truth of God. And that's what John is saying here. He is saying a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. This statement served to express a very clear truth. A truth which is just as valid today as it was back in John's day as it has ever been. And it is this. Divine truth. The truth of God is not open to interpretation. Divine truth cannot be divided into factions. Divine truth is not susceptible to divided loyalties. Divine truth is not an outworking of religious allegiances. It's an outworking of God's word. There's never going to be a situation where two people have divine truth in its purity and yet they are contending with one another about divine truth. And so John says here, there's no problem because the only thing that I can receive is that which I have received from heaven. The only thing that Jesus has received is that which he has received from heaven. And heaven is not going to contradict itself. Heaven is not going to tell me one thing and tell Jesus another thing and us both be right. And John has mentioned from the very beginning of his ministry that Jesus Christ is right. And if Jesus Christ is right... And John is still doing his thing, doing his baptism under repentance, then he must be in agreement with Jesus. John claimed to be teaching divine truth. Jesus claimed to be teaching divine truth. And John makes it very clear that they are both correct. See, John the Baptist is not seeking to start a religion, that's not what his baptism was about. He was not seeking to gain a following. He was not seeking to gain personal loyalties to himself. He was not 
seeking those things. He was a messenger of the truth. And who is the truth? The Word. Jesus Christ would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John was a messenger of the truth, and Jesus is the truth. John, Jesus is a disciple of John. John is a messenger of Jesus. Do you see this circle? Jesus came and was baptized by John in order that Jesus could identify with John's message. John deferred every ounce of priority, every ounce of attention to Jesus Christ, recognizing that Jesus Christ is the truth of God. These two ministries are entirely complementary, and they must be complementary because they're not following a religion of men, they're following the truth of God. And so John states very clearly that a man can receive nothing except to be given him of heaven. Now, we need to learn a lesson from John the Baptist today. We are, particularly in this church, by definition, religious people. Religion is not a bad thing. Religion is, in fact, a good thing. Religion is an outworking of the devotion which we owe to God through a determined and principal obedience to His will. Religion is, in essence, the physical manifestations of a heart dedicated to the truth. And so religion in and of itself is not a bad thing. But often, we as religious people can be tempted to become loyal to our religion instead of loyal to the God to whom the religion is meant to point us. We must be careful that our dedication is not to a religious framework, but to the truth of God's Word. We must take care that our loyalty to the teachings of a man or to the teachings of a system are not able to override our loyalty to the truth of God's Word. Now, we strive to ensure that all of our teachers, all of our religious observances, all of our theological frameworks would be entirely consistent with the truth of God. But even in such an ideal system where we desire that every man that teaches behind this pulpit, where we desire that every religious activity that we do is pointing us to God, where we desire that every theological idea that we have is consistent with God's Word, even in such a system such as that, it must be our particular determination that our loyalties rest upon this book and not upon a man, not upon a building, not upon a denomination, but upon the Word of God. So while you and I are religious people, our loyalty to religion and religious practices extends only as far as the degree to which our religious practices reflect and draw us into conformity with the truths of God. That was John's determination. The things that John did, the baptism of repentance that he was commanded to do, these religious observances... His loyalty to them were to the degree that these religious observances had the ability to point those that observed them to Christ. And so we learn first of all in verses 22 through 27, you do not follow a religion of men, you follow the truth of God. Look with me secondly, verses 28 through 36, our second important truth, 
You do not follow a religious man. You follow the true God. Huh. So you don't follow a religion of men. You follow the truth of God. Second, you do not follow a religious man. Your loyalties are not upon a religious man. Your loyalties are upon God. The true God. John continues in verse 28. And as he does, his answer to this group of men restates that which he testified much earlier in the book of John. That he is not the Christ. He is sent before the Christ. John never claimed to be Christ. John never attempted to have or to usurp Christ's authority. John never wanted to draw attention or loyalty, for that matter, to himself or away from Christ. On the contrary, John says in verse 29, his joy is tied directly to the success of Jesus Christ. And his only success as a religious man, his only success is found in Christ's success. John gives a very clear illustration to help us understand. He states that it is the bridegroom, what we would call in our culture the groom, that has the loyalty of the bride. Here's John's illustration. Now, in a couple of weeks, Patty Zakes is going to get married. We had received an invitation to that wedding, and just the other day, my wife and I RSVP'd to that, and we're looking forward to going to Patty's wedding. And when we get to that wedding, there's going to be a bride, Patty's ex. There's going to be a groom. I don't know his name, but we're going to the wedding. There's going to be a bride. There's going to be a, a groom. There's going to be groomsmen, friends of the groom. Now imagine what it would be like if on their wedding day, the groom's best man started flirting with the bride, started trying to pull the bride's loyalty away from her groom, that would be sickening. It would be disgusting. It would be revolting to see a friend, a so-called friend of the groom, attempting to steal away the loyalty of the bride from her groom. And as John gives the example, notice what he says in verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. The groom's friend does not seek the loyalty of the bride because the groom has the loyalty of the bride. The groom's friend does not get angry when the bride expresses her love for the groom. Rather, the groom's friend rejoices in her proper love and loyalty to her husband. And certainly, the groom's friend does not ever seek to divert the loyalty of the bride away from the groom. Anyone who would even consider these actions cannot rightly be called a friend of the groom, but rather we would consider him an enemy of the groom. And so as these men, disciples and leaders, question John about his personal feelings concerning Jesus' success, 
John makes it clear that Jesus' success is not simply okay, but John's entire desire as a friend of the bridegroom is to see the bride come to her groom. His entire purpose in ministry, the entire purpose of the best man, is to see that the bride and the groom have a wonderful day on their wedding. It's John's entire purpose in his ministry to point men, to point the bride of Christ to Christ. And that is the example that John is giving in verse 29. Now this philosophy is highlighted. Really, it's the title of this message, and the philosophy is encapsulated in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let Christ be lifted up, let me fall to the shadows. Let Christ be exalted, let me be diminished. Let Christ increase, let me decrease. That is John's philosophy. Now it is possible, as we have before observed, that verse 30 is where John's statements end and the rest of the chapter could be commentary by the writer of the epistle. We cannot know fully whether John continues speaking all the way through verse 36 or if the rest of this 31 through 36 is, is the writer of the epistle commenting on John. It really doesn't matter in the long scheme of things. Just know that it could go either way. Yet what we do see is that the rest of this chapter elaborates on our second truth. That we do not follow a religious man, we follow the one true God. God's church does not follow any man. God's church does not follow a man, but the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's church is not designated to follow a religious leader, but it is rather designated to follow Christ through religious leaders. Let me say that again. Catch my distinction. God's church is not designed to follow a religious leader. It is designed rather to follow Christ through religious leaders. What's the difference, Pastor? When we follow a religious leader, it is unacceptable to question him or to disagree with him. If you follow me, that everything I say behind this pulpit is gold to you. Then everything I say behind this pulpit is law. That if I decided today that things needed to change in this church, that if I decided today that we're going to change our, our standards completely and go the emergent church route, no one could say a thing against it because I am the leader. But if you are following Christ through me, then you are loyal to me only to the extent that I am loyal to the Word of God. That you agree with me only to the extent that I agree with the Scriptures. That I am a catalyst for vision, for direction, and for organization of the body. That I am responsible to teach you, but you are not loyal to me, you're loyal to the Word of God. That is the difference between following a Man and following Christ through a man. Following a religious leader and following a man as he follows Christ. And it's an important distinction that we must keep in mind. This is precisely the testimony of verses 31 through 33. Look at it with me. 
He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. God, uh, John states that the one from above, the Lord Jesus Christ, is above all. John is from the earth. He is earthly. He speaks in relation to the earth. But Christ, Christ is not from the earth. He is from above. His testimony is not the testimony of one who knows about heaven. Christ's testimony was the testimony of one who had seen heaven personally. One who had been to heaven. One who had come from heaven. Christ's testimony, that which he teaches throughout his ministry, is a first-hand testimony of God. Yet as we have learned throughout the epistle of John, the reality of Christ's authority does not ensure acceptance of his authority or belief on his name. John states at the end of verse 32 that no man receiveth his testimony. Now, this is not meant to be taken as a literal expression. Pastor, how do you know this is not meant to be taken as a literal expression? Because at the beginning of this message, we recognize that men had received his testimony. John was not trying to state literally that no one received Christ, but rather, he is trying to make a generalization that as a general rule, the nation of Israel had heard Messiah's testimony and had rejected it by and large. But, as John states in verse 33, there were those, many even, who did accept the testimony of Christ. John states very clearly that it is these men and women that affirm in their lives the truth of God's word. They set to their seal, they affirm through their lives that God is true. Their lives reveal that the message of God through Jesus Christ is true. Now the principle that John is teaching is this. Godly men are not men that say God is true. When we think about religious men, the difference between between having our loyalties serving a religious man or serving the one true God, this is what John is saying. A godly man is not the man that says God is true. A godly man is not the man that uses godly vocabulary. A godly man is not the man who is religious in their devotion and disciplined in their actions. Godly men are those men whose lives teach and whose teaching leads you to Christ and his teaching. Verse 33. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. The man that is a man of God is the man whose life and teaching point you to God. Point you to Christ. Sets to his seal that God is true. Godly men are those men whose own selves are overshadowed by the truth of God's word. Who among us, of all in this room this evening, are the ones who are validating the truth of God? Who among us are those who are truly living out the testimony of God through our lives? It is not the person that sits devoted to Pastor Wickler. It is not the person that sits devoted to Baptist churches. 
It is not the person who is devoted to our particular theological framework. The person who sets to his seal that God is true is the person who is devoted to this book, to the Word of God, and to the one true God. We as God's people who are living in the world, though not of the world, will often find ourselves in the company of those who claim the truth of God, but as you see their lives, as you see how they live their lives, as you listen to their doctrine, you find that their loyalties are not to God's truth, but their loyalties are rather to some religious system. There is a difference between loyalty to a religious system and loyalty to the truth of God. And I'm not just talking about legalistic religion here. I'm talking about those who are loyal to the emergent church religious system. I'm talking about those who are loyal to the, the grace alone, love of Christ alone religious system. Those who are loyal to the sacrament religious system. Those who are loyal to the legalistic religious system. One is just as misplaced in its loyalty as another. We must search our hearts and ensure that we are on the right side of this loyalty line. See, because the godly man is not the man that's loyal to a system. The godly man is the man that is loyal to the true God. And why? Verse 34 states, Because God hath not measured out his spirit to Christ, Jesus Christ, his work and his teaching came with the full spirit of God in power and in truth. So the spirit is sometimes given to us in measure. A religious man can stand behind the pulpit and he can have the power of God upon his life. The Holy Spirit can fill him and empower him to preach the word of God with boldness. But see, the word of God, which came from heaven, was not given the spirit of God in part. He came with the full spirit of God upon him, with complete validation of God because he is God. And so we're not loyal to a man that might have a measure of the spirit of God. We're loyal to the man that had the full spirit of God, the man Jesus Christ. Now, the passage concludes, we're almost finished with a statement that should be very familiar to us by now. That the Father loves the Son, that the Father has given unto the Son all power and all authority, and that the man who believes the Son has everlasting life. In contrast, however, he that believeth not, the one who does not receive the testimony of God concerning his Son, shall not see life. Notice it doesn't say may not see life. Notice it does not say could not see life. It says shall not see life. The man who does not accept the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a man that might not get to heaven. It's a man that shall not see life because he has not believed. We learned about that last time. On the contrary, to seeing life, the very wrath of God abides upon him. 
And so as we close this evening, we need to ask some questions. Believer, where do your loyalties lie? Certainly we recognize that once you are saved, you are secure in Christ, yet your testimony of the truth of God is intrinsically tied to where your loyalties lie. You have been saved. That's wonderful. Is your testimony reflecting loyalty to a system or to a man? Or is your testimony reflecting loyalty to God and therefore pointing others to Christ? Are your loyalties to your pastor or to your church? Would you believe me regardless of what I said? Would you believe the man behind this pulpit simply because he stands behind this pulpit? Are your loyalties on religious actions or on a religious system? Are you so loyal to a framework or an ideology or a way of thinking that it transcends your loyalty to the clear teaching of this book? If you found out tomorrow, if you realized tomorrow that what you believed was different than what this book taught, would you be willing to change what you believed to fall into conformity to this book? Where do your loyalties lie? As we close, I encourage each one of you this evening to ask the Holy Spirit to search your own heart and to root out any false loyalties, any loyalties that would cause us to be competing between the truth of God and a religious system. See, that's what the Pharisees tried to do to John. They were trying to cause a competition between the truth of God and a religious system. And if John the Baptist had not been a man wholly devoted to the truth, it would have caused great conflict. But because John was a man who was in line with Christ's teaching and the truth of God, there was no conflict. And that must be the defining characteristic of our lives as well. That we're not loyal. Now, I, I hope and pray that you trust me as your pastor. I hope and pray that you find my teaching by and large accurate and edifying. But I pray more than anything that your loyalty is to this book. That I have to, every week as I prepare for my sermons, be in a place where I have to make sure that what I'm saying is what this book is saying. Because if I say something that this book doesn't say, I'm in trouble with my people. Because they're going to come up and they're going to question me. And they're going to ask me why I said something that the Bible doesn't say. That's a good place for a pastor to be. Keeps me accountable. I trust that your heart is in such a place that as we observe religious practices among this body, that you're at a point where if something comes up and you look at God's word and you say what we're doing in our church is contrary to the word of God, you'll be more loyal to what the word of God has to say than what the church is doing. Now, by God's grace, that will never need to happen. By God's grace, our church will always stay in line with the word of God. But where do your loyalties lie? Let's meditate on that question as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God.